So what is it that makes a successful community? While there's a ton of definitions and a lot of metrics, I'd argue a successful community is one that is both fiscally resilient and has a strong identity of who they are as well as who they're not, all while providing real opportunity and not just the veneer of opportunity as today's guest points out. In today's episode, we're super excited to be joined by Chuck Marone of Strong Towns to discuss just that. to Eyes on the Street, a civic brand podcast, conversations on community branding, engagement, and marketing. Welcome to Eyes on the Street podcast. I am super excited about our guest today, Chuck Marone of Strong Towns. Chuck, thanks for coming on. How are you doing? Hey, fantastic. Nice to see you again. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, so Chuck, I became familiar with your work a, a few years ago, um, and I guess you know, something that I found really interesting about the place space, you know, is you have all these different groups, you have the the housing folks, the transit folks, the, you come at it from a fiscal angle, we come at it from an identity angle. And there's a lot of overlap. There's also a lot of differences. I'm sure you feel both, you know, you get the the housing crowd on Twitter maybe come after you on certain oh, things. They're, they're, <laughs> they're a fascinating group, no doubt. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I, 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 I love where those things overlap. And I think at the end of the day, where all of those groups overlap is just the importance of place, like how place shapes our lives, whether you're coming at it from, you know, cycling or transit or identity or fiscal, that place matters. It, it affects the opportunity that people have. It affects their health, their safety. I mean, I guess, would you agree that that's kind of the, the biggest overlap or do you, do you see some other overlaps that are worth talking about? No, no, that, that, that is it. I mean, in my book, I we call it human habitat, and uh, you know, human habitat is this complex adaptive system. And I think one of the things we disrespect uh, in our professional age, where we are all experts in a very small sliver of life, uh, is that this is a complex adaptive system where these things all do interact in novel ways, ways that defy our ability to really fully comprehend them, let alone predict and manage them. And so we can get really good at managing traffic flow on streets and then not recognize that we've screwed up our economy, our tax base, our culture, our capacity to work together, all, all these other things. We solved one problem in one dimension, but we didn't really uh, you know, humbly address this entire system. So yeah, I, I think in broadly, if we call it place, uh, we we call it human habitat, but I, I think we're talking about the same thing. It's 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 where we live, and it it is this uh, you know emergent system. That, that I think of it like this: if we look at a beehive, none of us would be surprised at all if we took bees and went in and said, you know, this beehive is kind of nice and you guys like it and it works, but we're going to make it better for you. We're going to put some bee cul-de-sacs over here and some bee frontage roads over here. And we're going to put your honey production way over here and separate that from where you sleep. And we're going to do all these things and we're going to create like a more optimized habitat for you. Uh, We would not at all be surprised to end up with neurotic bees who couldn't really function in this place. We, we, We recognize in nature that the bees have created a habitat designed for them that like optimizes who they are as bees. Why do we not recognize that as humans, we created space 
that is a sense optimized to us as humans to make us fully human. And I think we've, you know, we've spent the industrial age kind of deconstructing that and saying, no, 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 we, we can make it better in this dimension. And then, oh my gosh, it screws everything up. And then, oh no, no, now we need, you know, this and it screws everything up. And yeah. yeah. So I, I think it all comes back to place. Yeah. Well, I guess the, that's either the good news or the bad news, depending on how you look at it is as consultants, we'll never be out of work because there's always going to be a problem. We'll fix one problem, but we'll create three other problems with our solution and we'll just keep having to tackle it. Yeah. I think, I think the difference is, and, and I, I think there's a difference too, between the type of work that that you do and, and, and others that work place as their center focus and other consultants. And I did consulting for many years. So I'm, I'm lumping myself into the second category that I'm going to speak poorly of now. Um, we have unprecedented capacity today to make change uh, and, and, you know, slash wreak havoc. So we can come in and if we have a problem, we can access the multi-trillion dollar bond market. We can access millions of dollars of federal and state aid and funding. We can, you know, get developers to come in and, and partner with us to do large things. And we can, with kind of a, you know, nonchalant sweep of the hand, uh, completely transform the landscape in a way that we think is better. And I think consultants of the past, and we can go back to Leonardo da Vinci, who was a consultant in Florence and other, you know, cities in in Italy, telling them, let's fix this and change that. There was a limit to how much change they could do at once. They basically had to work incrementally because those are the only tools they had. And when you work incrementally, you get the feedback from your actions before they ripple through the entire system. We're, we're kind of a society now that has the capacity to destroy itself. And I think in many ways, from, a, from an urban design standpoint, uh, we've set out to do just exactly that. Yeah. And, and that incremental approach, that's actually the very first thing that brought me to your work is, you know, because I, I came at this from, I'm a designer, right? And so you know, even when before civic brand, before we were doing civic brand, we were just doing design for corporations and branding and all that. And I was drawn to, you know, your main streets, your downtowns, things that were walkable, things that were human scale. I knew I liked those things and I, I appreciated them, but your fiscal work was actually what to me was kind of the proof behind why. Um, I'm a big believer that you know, unlike art, you can have personal preference, you can have taste, everybody's art can be right. I think with design, there is kind of a design truth. And your work was actually, to me, the proof, because I knew I liked it, but my concern was, we're always trying to eliminate personal taste and preference, right? And I know you're a musician, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We've talked about Well, you know, some people <laughs> say that I'm a drummer. So yeah, there's always that joke, you know, what's a guy surrounded by five musicians? That's the, the drummer. drummer, right? Right. <laughs> Well, and, and, and so the, I guess the reason I ask you that is I wanted to make sure, you know, I wasn't just taking the approach of kind of like somebody that hates on a band because they went to a major label, right? When I liked the indie stuff, I liked the small scale human, but your fiscal work kind of was the proof behind, oh yeah, I'm not just liking this because of the aesthetic. I'm liking this, this, you know, individual buildings owned by individual people, human scale. It was the fiscal proof behind that. And I think that's so important. Well, let's break that down in a couple of ways. Because I, I think the interesting thing about music as an analogy is that, 
you know, most rock music is three chords, right? I mean, there's a, there's a there's a handful of things, and you see how much variation comes out of that, and a, an astounding amount. Yet we've now seen with AI analysis of music that there's actually certain progressions and certain things that are baked into the most popular songs, the songs that stick in your brain, the songs that move you to uh, to cry and, and to smile and to high five your friends. The, the, there's a certain set of kind of humanness things to these rhythms and patterns that affect our our soul. I can't really explain why our brain stems do this. I'm that's not my area of expertise, and I I think people have studied this to one degree or another. But the reality is is that humans, through trial and error, figured this out, and they figured this out a long time ago, and they started replicating and, and building beautiful sets of music off of this different pattern. And 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 you get Latin music, you get. Uh, Italian music that's different than English music, that's different than French music, that's different than American music, that's that's different than Indian and Chinese music, but they're all kind of variations on, you know, the same kind of rhythmic patterns and the same kind of chords. I, when we look at our cities, I see a lot of the same stuff. You know, we're, we're having this weird debate right now in the U.S., about uh, classical architecture versus modern architecture. And, and it's, I, there are people who are uh, in the architecture community who are like deeply, deeply passionate about this to the point where they're willing to call others fascists and, and, and you know, all these like horrific names because of their taste preferences. Uh, to me, the interesting part is when you get into like the neuroscience and you start to say like, what does the non-architecture type person what do they find comfortable? What do they find uh, relaxes their brainstem? What, what, what kind of space do they find affirming and, uh, and, and, and really comforting to them? And what kind of space do they find that makes them have anxiety or causes their, uh, their blood pressure to go up or what have you? And there's some actual very clear parallels between what what I think architects would call classical types of design or design that what I would say are more traditional neighborhood types of designs, these incremental patterns, the, the stuff you find on Main Street, stuff that quite frankly, they've replicated at places like Disney World, uh, where they want you to feel the happiest place on earth, right? They want you to feel comfortable. They've actually designed a place to optimize human feelings in a in a space. Uh, these are design tricks and things you can see. I toured ancient Pompeii, the ruins of Pompeii, and you see these same exact design tricks there. So we figured these out by trial and error too. And I, I think that's what is a fascinating is that, uh, you know, when, when we've been able to use modern techniques and modern uh, things to understand our decisions of our ancestors, and I say ancestors in like the largest possible sense of the word, I mean, around right. the world and in different cultures. And when we've kind of been humble about the things that they figured out through trial and error over thousands of years, we've uncovered some fascinating things. When we've used our technology and our capacity to go in and say, those people were really dumb. Let me clear away what they did and then build something new. It, it has tended to, to not work. And the finances it reflects in the finance. I always say like the financial part is basically like a constraint. It's a constraint of, of you can think of it like keeping score. You have to score high enough uh, on the financial viability meter 
to be uh, viable over time. And it, it, that's not a money measurement. I mean, we measure it today in money, but it's really a productivity kind of measurement. If you're not creating enough value for the amount of resource you put into it, your place is going to fail. And our ancestors understood this clearly because guess what? The places that failed went away and were not copied and those ideas weren't passed on. So everything we've inherited has kind of gone through that filter of viability. And when we measure the finances of it, we see traditional neighborhoods, downtowns, incremental places dramatically outperform the stuff that we've been building the last 70, 80 years, uh, particularly the further out we get from that center core. Yeah. Well, it's amazing how, I guess, short-term our memory is because, you know, I was listening to your last podcast you were talking to, I think it was a, some doctor in London talking about, or yeah, the UK yeah. talking about, and, you know, you were kind of, I think one of your questions to him was like, well, what's your proof or why do you think this is going to work? And it's like, well, this is how we've built cities always, <laughs> like all right. of history. You know, it's only this very kind of like short, modern way of building places that we kind of change things. And so um, it's, it's guess- almost as if we started walking backwards for some reason. And then for like de- two generations, three generations have walked backwards. And then someone said, you know what, if we just walk forwards, it would work a lot better. And people are like, what's your proof? Um, and it's like, well, cause humans for thousands of years walked forwards. Like, why don't we just try it? It seemed to work for them. I think it might work for us. And, and for some reason we've, we've become incapable of thinking that way. And it's it, it, literally like, this is wired in our brain to do this. Yeah. Yeah. So it's so interesting. And so I wanted to dive kind of into the overlap between the work that we do identity work and the work that you do and we were working on a project together. You were down in fate, Texas, giving a talk. And um, you, you kind of told the, your story about fitting in or not fitting in your kind of military background. Uh, I'd, I'd love you to kind of share, share a version of that. And, and why do you think, why, why did you tell that story? Which part of it did I tell? Cause I, I, I tend to tell a lot of stories. <laughs> uh, I, I, it was kind of like your, your first tour, you, you know, you were, you were fitting in. And oh, the yeah. second tour, you you decided to be you and stand yeah. out. Yeah, it, it was interesting because so I joined the army when I was in high school. Uh, it, it was very apparent to me that first of all I was going to go to college, and second of all, my parents had no money to to pay for me. And you know, if you joined the uh, I joined the National Guard. If you joined the National Guard, you could get your tuition paid for and stipend and all this. And in fact, that's what I did. I, I graduated. Uh, in four years with an engineering degree and had no debt. And and I have the army to thank for that. But what I gave up is I gave up two summers. So I gave up my summer between my junior and senior year, uh, which, you know, that's a fun summer to to have. I also gave up my next summer between my senior year and my freshman year in college. So that when I started as a freshman, I would be fully, you know, uh, could, could qualify for all the, the military benefits. Um, the first summer when I went, the advice that I got from people was, uh, you're at basic training, you want to fit in, you don't want to be first in line, you don't want to be last in line. If the crowd of people is moving, you want to be in the exact middle. You want the drill sergeants to not know who you are. You, you, you want to just be like a cog in the thing. Like, like, and if you're not, what will happen is you'll get volunteered for things, you'll get picked on, you'll get abused. Just keep your head down. And I was so proud because I was so good at this. Like I, I would look around and I would measure like the diameter of the circle of people I was in. I would make sure I was always in the center. And when we got done, 
uh, at graduation, I introduced my parents to my drill sergeant, Drill Sergeant Jackson. And I said, Drill Sergeant Jackson, this is my mom and dad. This is Chuck and Brenda Marone from Brainerd, Minnesota. And he looked at my name tag to find out who I was. He did not know me. And I'm like, I won. I totally won. My drill sergeant doesn't even know who I am. The next summer, though, I, that felt wrong to me. And there were a lot of like moments where uh, I would call them like leadership moments where I felt like, okay, I could do this better than the person doing it now. Or I, I, I felt like we were lesser because I was kind of, you know, not doing what I should be doing, but it was just like protecting my own butt in a sense. And so the next summer, it was the same thing. It was my advanced training, which is like your, your secondary training in the military. And I said, I'm going to step up this time. Like, I'm not going to take this advice. I didn't really like doing that. And so, yeah, I, I wound up being guide on bearer, which is kind of a symbolic person, but you stand up front with the flag, which is in training is a very important job. And I'm always out front and you get yelled at because you're out front, but you also get to be out front and you kind of like know what's going on and you're in the know and you're, and I, I was so proud of that second tour, that second summer. Um, and not only that, but like my drill sergeant actually that summer gave me an award for like being the best guide on bear. You know, I don't know that he's ever had, but they didn't give awards to any of the other guide on bears. Uh, so it, it, it meant a lot to me. And I, I do think that there is a lesson there in, um, you know, there, there may be times to go along. Uh, but I think, you know, when you're called to do something or when you have a, a talent or a capacity, and a lot of us are, and I think everybody has some inner talent and capacity, uh, we shouldn't suppress that. We should, uh, you know, I, I think everyone benefits when we step up. Yeah, for sure. And I think, the, the two things that that really makes me think about when it comes to place is, you know, I think you also mentioned that, you know, you could drive between Austin and San Antonio and every one of those towns, if you went and visited them, if you looked in their comp plan, they're probably saying we're unique, we're different. <laughs> but then when you drive through, you're like, no, you're, you're fitting in. And so I think how we build our place speaks to that. I also think how city leaders lead in place, you know, nobody really wants to, I think maybe it's because of how, you know, it's driven by local elections and you have to be able to point at what you did. Nobody really wants to be the, the general up on the horse. Cause that's an easy person to shoot at. Um, right. So I guess. How, let, how, let me pull this together. Cause I, I, I do think, you know, we've basically built a frontage road between Austin and San Antonio. That's just a repeat over and over again of the same handful of, of franchises and the same development pattern. And if you do go to all of them, their comp plans will say, you know, this, uh, my city, insert name, is a very unique place. And we have a unique culture and a unique way of life. And we're building a, a you know, a different place. Uh, but it's the exact same place over and over and over again. And the, the scary thing is, is if you go to those public officials, they essentially are reflecting the advice that my uncle gave me in the military. Um, and they will ask you, if you say, we should do this thing that is slightly outside the kind of standard accepted practice, um, but is something that, you know, humans did for thousands of years or something that would be a, what we at Strong Towns call a little bet or a small bet. Um, the first question they will ask is, Show me the place that's already done it. Show me the place that has done this and been successful. Show me the place that uh, has a track record or show me the data of places that have done these things. And it's very frustrating because 
what they're saying to you is, I want to be unique and different and bold, but I don't want to do anything unique and different and bold. I, I, I want to be very, very safe. And the funny thing is, is I get that. Like, I, I don't think cities should be out like gambling away their future. I don't think they should be out playing roulette w- with the community's balance sheet and, and, and going for snake eyes on the next project. That doesn't mean that they can't be bold and innovative. They just have to do it at like the right scale and making small changes and small shifts and seeing how things work and reacting to that. That's not, um, you know, the, 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 that's not uh, sitting in one place. And it's also not being reckless. That's actually being really smart and tactical in how you evolve and change and, and truly create that unique culture and that unique place that you're trying to build. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's where I hope that the work that we do, you know, when we help a community figure out who they are, it's not about marketing and attracting visitors. It's a, it's really to help them have that decision lens so that when they do the real important stuff, like planning and economic development, that they make decisions through that identity lens uh, as kind of a filter that helps them do that. Um, I'm well, curious. Let, let me say one thing about your work. Because I, I, I do think that this is interesting because I've seen a lot of people who try to do what you do and they will often, let me put it this way. Often what comes out the other end is a, 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 brand, a, a, a brand logo that people in the community look at and go, that's a bunch of BS. Like that's, a, like that, that's, that's, what we, that's what we like pretend to be to someone else, but that's not who we are, right. you know? And, and and I think, you know, I, I've seen enough of what you guys have done uh, to know that the process that you use and the way you go about this is to say, how do we do this authentically? And how do we help you kind of become the people that you also want to be? You know, so it's not, it's not a, uh, you know, we don't sell junky, crappy ice cream and then market ourselves as like the greatest ice cream in the world. Uh, we're actually going to, you know, have a, have a brand that both inspires us, but also reflects us. Yeah. That is, that is different. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that, that you recognize that. And that's definitely what we go for. And I think, you know, kind of like your, your upcoming book, you know, where you kind of point a finger back at your, your background of engineers. I feel like we try to do the same thing of like, you know, when somebody says that branding is just lipstick on a pig and I'm like, yeah, it is. It is a lot of times. 90% yeah. of the time it is. And and let's point out why we should be doing it differently. Um, My and- neighboring city, Baxter is like a, the suburb of Brainerd where I live now. And uh, they, they went through this and they came up with Baxter naturally as their like catchphrase slogan. And they put that on their water towers and stuff. I mean, this is a place where when I was a kid, I lived in Baxter. That's where the Marone family farm is that I grew up on the homestead. And we were like less than a thousand people. And today it's 10,000, but it's 10,000, you know, with one highway through with the frontage roads, all the big box stores, the residential subdivisions and cul-de-sacs. It is basically like every other place along the road. It's just now it's their turn, but it's their thing is there naturally. And I'm like, the, everyone laughs at it. It's, it's stupid. It's dumb. Yeah. You know, and Maybe we all that's... recognize that. Maybe that's what they meant by, well, naturally we'll do what the other times do. <laughs> <laughs> we'll naturally just follow what everybody else does. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm curious, are you familiar with the term airspace? Have you heard this? Um, 
probably not the way you're going to use it. Okay. So. so I came across this article a while back and it was a, I can't remember. I'll, I'll put a link to the actual article in the, the show notes, but um, basically it was a, a writer was talking about this aesthetic that was kind of becoming this global aesthetic. And I think I, I loved this article. I love this. And really what he was, he was coming at it from like the Airbnb world where, you know, when Airbnb started, it was about letting out an extra room that you had, or, you know, live like a local. And it was very much about getting that local experience. But as people started to make their living off of renting these places, people caught on to what design and aesthetic naturally got booked and worked. And so even right now I'm in this kind of co-working space and, and he describes this airspace aesthetic as, you know, think of what every co-working space, cool coffee house, you've got the Edison bulbs, you know, there's this global aesthetic that is kind of spreading and taking over the world. Um, and, you know, the positive, I guess, is that good design is more accessible than ever due to like Pinterest and Instagram and all these things. People recognize what good design is, but it's becoming homogenous to where even if it's good, if it's all the same, is that really better? And, and you were talking about music earlier of the, you know, there's the the core foundation of chord structures, but you still are able to have Latin music and different flavors. And I think my concern from a play standpoint is even if we get some of the fiscal stuff right, and even if we start to improve and have better design, if it's just this airspace, whitewashed aesthetic, what a tragedy that why you would never need to travel again. You would never, no, no place would be unique. It would be better, but it would be just, what's the point? And so I'm curious, just your thoughts on that when it comes to place and identity. It is such an interesting conversation um, because I can see where, why would you ever travel again? But then on the other hand, there's a huge competitive advantage for the places that, that, that deviate from that. Right. Um, and then they will be copied and what have you. It, it's as you're speaking, I, I'm, there's, there's two things that came to my mind. The, the first is this book that I read called 1491. I think it's a, it's about the uh, Colombian 1493. It's about the Colombian exchange. And basically once Columbus makes this trip, uh, all these things start happening. And the book focuses on, I mean, to me, like the most interesting parts of the book is, is the bacteria and the microbes that trans that, that, that just hop along on these ships coming across and how they have created this kind of unstoppable, you know, terraforming of continents, uh, that, that goes on in, in ways we don't even understand or grasp. Uh, because different species that have been isolated from each other are now, and and the result is like an homogenization of the landscape. Um, you know, uh, basically like the dominant species become dominant everywhere. Uh, this is true with flora, with fauna. Um, you see the same thing with language. You know, you can go to New Guinea, and in New Guinea, there's something like 600 languages in this tiny little island, basically. Um, and it's because all these different villages have been isolated from themselves for so long that their languages have evolved to be very different from each other. They may have all started in similar places, but because of that isolation, they've, they've evolved. Well, now um, they're all speaking. I can't remember what they, what they call it, but there's, there's basically like a universal language that has taken over 
um, that the you know younger people start to speak first because it's the cool language, and then the older language kind of starts to die away. And in a couple of generations, people are speaking this this language, and and the language the number of languages has dropped definitively. I, I even think of you know I'm 47. I think of when I was a kid, the Minnesota accent where I'm from was much deeper than it is now, uh, as was the Southern accent. Uh, I remember in basic training when they brought the kid from Georgia up and made him sing the uh, the song, the comp- the company song, Alpha Two Two Six, and he had like the the he had the highest voice and the the like craziest twang accent, and they brought him up and made him do it so we could all just laugh at him because it was funny. I don't think you have that accent anymore, or you don't have it to that depth. It, it's not because we all listen to the same people talking on TV. We all communicate in the same way and, and, and our accents have all declined. I think that these are things that happen with contact, right? Uh, you know, this is what that, that 1493 book is about is like, as soon as contact is made, some of this becomes inevitable. We copy each other. We take the best ideas. And and, and the, the thing is we do it at scale now, right? So all of a sudden, the great thing that's happening in Vienna is now also happening in my backyard in Brainerd because we can copy that style. Feng Shui becomes this thing that you know sweeps the globe in the '90s because someone in LA decided that this was you know a real great way to live, and then it got on a TV show, and now it's everywhere. Yeah. Um, I, I, I it's funny because you would think that the proliferation of like media outlets and music and all these things would allow for more individualizing of things. Your newsfeed is different than my newsfeed, but it's not, it's going the opposite direction. It's actually making us all read the same things, look at the same things, experience the same handful of things. And you have to be really intentional to not do that. So as cities, uh, I, I do think that there is a clarion call to not only understand who you are and who you want to be, um, but it, in a sense to actually lean into that. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, I don't know if our culture can handle that sometimes, you know, like I, I, I think of, um, I mean, we're having some uh, difficult and I, I would say, most times productive conversations about things like race and things about gender and things about culture. And, and, you know, uh, there's a, a tendency in the U S to both homogenize and also kind of like, uh, isolate the Canadians are a little bit different where they've kind of, when people came to Canada, they didn't, the, the goal wasn't assimilation as much as keeping your culture intact. Uh, they've had challenges with that too. I, I'm kind of one of these people who falls along the side of, I would rather have more cultures that are unique and individual than have one big homogenized culture. Um, sure. But that's not the way things work, right? Yeah. I mean, my, cool. my family was Scandinavian and you, besides the Christmas cookies I bake, you'd be hard to pull a lot of Scandinavian out of me today. <laughs> right. Well, I think, you know, to try to pull that back into the fiscal lens, you know, yeah. like of your work, you know, you talk a lot about building wealth, right. And that kind of right. should be the goal of streets. And I think cities and so many cities, their goal really isn't 
they're not going to say our goal is to be unique and different. They're, it's it's about opportunity. My concern is that I think the powers that be and the whether you call it the one percent or whatever people that own everything um, is that we're kind of using opportunity and we're using good design as a way to sort of pacify. Because um, I let me make this point. I think everybody deserves good design, right? Everybody, if there's something that works in Vienna, you should have it in your town too. Like everybody should have the opportunity to have design. I feel like what we've done though, when we, we're not allowing people to build wealth is we're, we're, we're taking people that maybe historically their demographic or their culture has been poor and we're giving them, you're going to have a nice apartment. You're going to get Ikea furniture. You'll always have the latest iPhone, but you're never going to own anything. And so we're pacifying the veneer of good design. What's that? You're going to have the veneer of exactly. Yeah. Right. And I, and I think, you know, I mean, if you, if you go to somebody who is making minimum wage and you say, look, you'll never make over 60,000, but I'll bump you up to 40,000 right now. They'll probably take that bet in a lot of cases, you know? And I, I think that's, we're using opportunity and we're using good design to sort of keep people in this very comfortable, brave new world kind of, you know, way of building cities that's very profitable to developers and, and larger corporations. And, and people are going along with it because they get the new iPhone. Hey, as long as I've got the latest iPhone, I'm, I'm cool with this. I don't need to own this. Um, so I, I guess that's why that's my concern and my pushback because who doesn't want to have the cool coffee shop with the cool Edison bulbs in their town? Everybody deserves that, but how do we allow them to build wealth and how do we maintain, you know, I, I want to have Latin music and country music and all these different flavors of it. Let, let me take it to the next step. There's a, there's a, a, a professor named Ann Sussman. Uh, she wrote a book called Cognitive Architecture. I, I, I personally think this is the, the best book I've read in the last five years. I, it's astounding. I, I have, it's a spendy book. She's got a sequel to it coming out uh, that I haven't read yet, but I will be reading shortly because I'm going to be interviewing her. Uh, I bought it for people because I thought it was so profound. I'm like, you have to read this book. Um, let me try to summarize in in a in a very short like snippet. She has recognized that businesses, and you can think of Apple as like maybe the best at this, have been really successful at using design to sell us stuff. Um, I love Walt Disney Corporation. Like I I, I love. I find the design of their theme parks to be some of the most genius urban design in North America. Um, and it is, I take my staff there. We do our reach staff retreats there uh, at different theme parks. And I use it as an opportunity to show them like what exquisite design looks like, but it's exquisite design designed to sell you something. Right. And, and what Anne says in her book is that basically these design tricks, these design tools, this, this design knowledge, the marketing people get this. They really understand it and they've been able to use it to sell you stuff. The design people who are designing our places seem to not like not only not grasp this stuff, but seem almost to be offended by it. You know, uh, the idea that, you know, Coca-Cola can design their cans or their display cases or what have you uh, to make you like Coke better. Why wouldn't you do that to make you like your park better? 
or your city hall better or your block better or your place better. Like th- this is not like evil knowledge used to manipulate you as much as it is knowledge that can be used to sell you stuff or used to make your life a lot better and more enjoyable and, 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 you know, just like generally more pleasant. Um, I, 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 I marvel at the way our ancestors seamlessly did this. You can go to poor, poor places. And what you will see is that a hundred years ago, they had great design. They might not have had great materials. They might not have had opulent things. They might've been made out of wood instead of uh, marble. Okay, fine. But if you look at the wood, the wood will have little ornamentation details in the right place. They won't waste their time on places where people won't see it, but you'll, you'll see the details in the right space. I live in a house built in the early 1900s and, you know, a very common technique then was to put the nice wood on the first floor for the trim and the cheaper wood on the second floor. And that's exactly what my house is. And the first floor, uh, it's got a thick door. It's got like nice trim in a couple of places. And then in the places that you're really not going to see, they, they skimped a little bit on it. Mm-hmm. And you can see that because that's what poor people did. They, 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 they took and they made sure they had that attention to detail in those places. Um, it, it's sad because our design people, have lost that. And I I do think it's the finance that has done it to us because, and and I'll say this, and I don't want to sound pithy about it, but what happened after in the Great Depression and World War II is that our economy moved from being about kind of this bottom-up building wealth and stability, starting with families and blocks and neighborhoods and, and how do we make them successful and prosperous to an economy really run by macroeconomists about creating trans economic transactions. The theory of economy changed to, to in a sense say, we're going to all be better off if we can just get a lot of capital flowing through the system. And so if you look, cities became not places built for people, not places built for uh, you know, creating wealth and prosperity and stability in a place, so like a, a platform for human flourishing. Cities became uh, kind of like the primary growth machine to generate transactions. And, and you play that out to today. And, you know, we can watch the Marriott Hotel come in and drop down their, you know, standard frame hotel. And it has all the new you know, different light things and facade things. And it's a cheap junky building that 20 years from now will be gone or obsolete or, 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 you know, be, uh, you know, wanting to be torn down or, or completely redone. Yeah. It, it's, it, it is a very different sense of what human habitat should be. Right. And I think that's just a larger example of we're pacified, you know, I get the new iPhone all right, your town gets the new Marriott and you're not, you don't, you don't have to, you know, 20 years is for a city is a short time, but it's a long time for an individual. So like, they're not going to experience the pain close to when they experience the high. Right. That's Um, exactly right. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, we're almost starting to sound like the socialist hour here. I I am a, (laughs) I'm a market person. a, A lot of, you know, my entry into, 
the urban design conversation was in doing these financial models for cities, trying to understand why the projects that I was working on were not working, why why they why the economics of them was not making cities wealthier and more prosperous. Um, so I'm I'm a huge believer in markets and market feedback. I, I just think that our markets need to be very localized. Uh, yeah. You know, we have we have we've made our cities places. Uh, you know, that, that generate transactions for increasingly larger and larger corporations. And it works if you measure success by M2, you know, the, the measurement of capital flow, uh, the measurement of, uh, if you measure it by how much the stock market goes up, how much GDP goes up. If those are your measurements of success, this system like is working at least up to this point. If you measure it based on, you know, actual capacity of humans, their happiness, their self-satisfaction, their stability, their overall prosperity, their net worth, their, you know, all these things have been trending in the wrong direction for decades now. Yeah. Um, And I, I think it's a direct result of how we build our places. Yeah. And I mean, we've seen this with corporations. There's now corporations that are taking that triple bottom line. You know, they're not just looking at profit. They're looking at their impact on people and their community. And, and, and yeah, I, I've got a good friend, Jeff Siegler with Revitalize Your Die. And he talks about local capitalism, local first capitalism. And yeah, let's be capitalists. Let's be free market. Let's make money. Let's just generate local wealth. Um, you know, we're not trying to push some socialist agenda here. Like everybody wants, deserves, I think the right to make money and build wealth. I, I feel like, you know, Adam Smith, when he wrote the wealth of nations, uh, you know, much like every, I think great breakthrough, whether you're talking Newton or Einstein, or whether you're talking someone like Jane Jacobs, they were observers of reality they sat back and they observed what was going on. And to me, wealth of nations is really an observation on how local markets work and how transactions work. And this is before they had the term capitalism and accumulation of capital, all these theories about capital flows. He was just recognizing like how people transact and, and, and how having you know, a tr- transaction that has both a financial dimension and the moral dimension of being your neighbor you know, someone in a community that you live in uh, has this kind of complexity to it that makes it makes it work. And when you take those uh, transactions and you abstract them over larger distances, you know, it's a shipping company now, shipping between nations. Uh, the, the 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 nature of the transaction changes, and I I think that you know we have. Uh, <laughs> We, we, we have been too prone to, you know, fall into the, the isms, right? And, and I think less thoughtful about just the human in front of us and the interaction with them and, and, and how we make that a human connection that, you know, sure, has a, has a financial dimension to it, but has many, many more because we are humans and that's how we're wired. Yeah, for sure. Well, Chuck, a great conversation. I'm, as we, before we wrap up and go, you know, I guess if someone's interested in kind of some of the things we've talked about, Strong Towns Movement, where, is, where, where should they start? Is it, you know, I know you've got a, a book that's pretty new. You've got another book coming out. Is that the place to start? Should they go to your website? 
I, I think it depends on where you want to dive in. I mean, Strong Towns, we've been writing uh, two, three times a week. I'm sorry. I started out writing two, three times a week in 2008. We now put two, three articles a day out on our site. Strongtowns.org is where you can get that. If you go there, we've got uh, all the social media feeds where we're kind of constantly sharing uh, our stuff and our ideas. We also have a one-on-one course you can take for free, kind of gives you up to speed. And then, yeah, the the Strong Towns book, Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity, is a, a great place to really immerse yourself. Um, the next one is Confessions of a Recovering Engineer, Transportation for a Strong Town. It comes out September 8th. And uh, yeah, that will be all about uh, the Strong Towns message as it relates to transportation. Um, working on a, the next one will be about housing and then economic development. We got a whole series that we're working on uh, to try to help people kind of uh, understand their their place at, and really kind of take 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 take. I was going to say ownership, but I think we already have ownership. Um, take control of their place and make it the place they want it to be. Yeah. Well, Chuck, I appreciate your time. Uh, you know, I know you're going to be doing a book tour and so you'll be kind of, I'd encourage people to, if they see that Chuck's coming to your town, definitely, you know, come out and see him, invite your neighbors and your, your city manager and your mayor. Um, but Chuck, appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Robert. So nice to talk to you again. Thanks for listening to Eyes on the Street, a civic brand podcast. For more information on Civic Brand, please visit civicbrand.com or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter.